Hey, just turn myself on. Hey, how are we doing? Are we okay? Good morning. It's hot in here, isn't it? I see everyone's like this. Turn and blow on your neighbour. No, don't blow on your neighbour. They won't appreciate that. Well, as Joe said, my name's Alid. Um, I'm one of the members here at King's and part of the leadership team. Uh, and it's my absolute privilege to be kickstarting our uh, new preach uh, series, looking through the book or the first half of the book of Exodus. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's the second book in the Bible, and it's basically uh, the Exodus story, uh, if you like, is the salvation story of God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, it is the key Old Testament salvation story, the outworking of salvation in the Old Testament, which is related to or referred to a number of times in the New Testament. And the pattern of salvation we see in this historical event is used throughout the Bible to explain our own personal salvation through what would be Jesus Christ on the cross thousands of years later. So our intention over these next uh, five, six weeks, I think it is, on this uh, kind of short mini-series, is that as we look through the first half of Exodus, is to draw on these patterns of salvation, if you like, so that we may better understand and enjoy the salvation that is available to all of us in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what we want. So we won't have time to read the whole of the story together. Uh, so can I just encourage you, maybe over the coming weeks, why don't you have a go at reading it yourself at home? Really get into it, just dig into it, just find out the fuller picture of the story, because um, today we're only going to look at part of it, and over these six weeks we won't even look at the whole of uh, Exodus. So today I'm going to be looking kind of at salvation, how it's part of God's promise, and how it's God's initiative. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to pray, not just for this morning, but actually for this whole series. Is that okay? So you don't have to stand, but why don't you just quickly close your eyes and I'm just to pray. Father, I want to thank you that, that salvation is your story. It's your initiative. I want to thank you that each and every one of us that call you our saviour, we're here because of you. And uh, I just pray over these coming six weeks, would we come to a fresh understanding of your grace and your mercy on our lives. And I just pray, would you stir up a fresh joy and excitement on all the wonders of you, I pray, in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. 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 So why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 2. And just while you're finding that, I'm going to quickly catch you up, if you like, on God's story so far. What's happened so far? So we read at the very beginning of our Bibles, Genesis 1, that in the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman. And he looked at all that he made and he said it was very good. It was very good. But as we go on in our Bibles, we read actually it didn't stay good for that long because created men and women decided that they felt no need anymore for the creator God. No need anymore for the sustainer God, for the life giver anymore. And so the pattern of history from that point onwards became one of God loving people, wanting a relationship with them, but them turning their backs on God and doing things their own way. But God being a God of love made a promise to a man, one man, a man called Abraham. And God's promise was that through this one man, Abraham, he will bring about a people who will once again be in relationship with the creator, sustainer, life-giving God, under his rule and under his blessing. 
So we start with just one man. Small beginnings. And uh, so God actually provides a son uh, for his barren wife, Sarah. And then through Isaac, he has children of his own. And then he actually has 12 great-grandkids. And one of those great-grandkids are very familiar to us because of Andrew Lloyd Webber and all those guys. We have Joseph, yeah, and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And what we know from that story is actually that Joseph found real favour in the eyes of the Egyptian pharaoh. And Joseph, along with his family, in fact, all of the 12 tribes, the 12 brothers, they all actually set up residence, if you like, in Egypt. And then we find out that actually they grow and they multiply and they become really fruitful as the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. So they settled and they flourished there. But what we also read then in Exodus 1 is that Pharaoh dies, Joseph and his brothers, they die. And over time, actually, a new Pharaoh rises up who doesn't look on the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, favorably anymore. In fact, he starts to get quite nervous about them. He starts to fear them. He's actually scared the fact that they are becoming too fruitful. So what he does, he actually puts them into slavery. So the Egyptian people start ruling over the Israelites. They actually start, uh, they force them into forced labour. And in fact, such was his concern on the fruitfulness or the success of the Israelite people. He sends out a decree and says that every baby boy that is to be born to a Hebrew, they're to be killed at birth. He wants to put a stop to this growth. God's chosen people, the people who are part of the promise from Abraham down through the generations, now slaves to an oppressive dictator. And then cues our main character for this series, Moses, a man chosen by God. And yet he was one of these Hebrew babies, which by all rights should have been killed at birth. But his mother, she, he, he puts him in a, in a reed basket and sends him down the Nile. And who would find this baby but the Pharaoh's own daughter? I just love God's sense of humor in this. The very child that the Pharaoh would want to kill ends up actually growing up under the the reign and the rule of the Egyptian household. They teach him things. They look after him. And from a young boy, Moses grew up under the care and instruction of the Egyptian people, but he never really forgot who he was, who he really was. And one day uh, we read in Exodus 2.12 that he sees an Egyptian man beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And this is what it says in Exodus 2.12. Come up behind me. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, word gets out about this. He thinks no one sees, but suddenly he looks and it's all over Facebook. He's like, oh no, even, even the Pharaoh hears about it. And, and what Pharaoh does, he wants to kill him. This, this Hebrew lad that he even invested time in has been brought up in his household. He has killed one of his own. He, he's out to get him. There's a bounty on Moses' head. What does he do? He flees Egypt. And he flees to a place called Midian. Uh, he stumbles across um, a girl that he rather likes. And he actually marries her. Her name is called Zipporah. And they have a boy of their own called Gershon. And then we get to the place that we're here uh, today. So Exodus chapter 2, verses 23. Uh, If you haven't got a Bible with you, that's fine. It's going to come up 
uh, before me. It's quite a long passage. We're not going to read all of it, uh, but we're just going to do a good section of the story, and we're going to do that at the front end, and then we'll go through and pick out a few points. Okay, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was not burning. Sorry, it was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And I'm sure he'd have said it in a much more grandiose voice than that. And, and Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, I am the God of the promise. The promise, the inheritance, which was Abraham's, and then Isaac's and Jacob's, is yours. It's for the Hebrew people. I'm still here. I'm on the scene. I am the God of the promise. I'm still on the scene. I'm faithful. I'm here. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Hivites and the Jebusites, sorry, the Hittites, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. I can't say any better than that, but nor can you, so I'll just pretend it went well. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. I love that. I have come to deliver them. I wonder what Moses is feeling at this very moment. We know he's scared, I wonder whether there was also a sense of relief, a sense of, yes, God is going to do something. God is going to do something. What does he say? Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Brilliant. I just love the matter-of-fact nature of God. He sounds so casual, doesn't he? I know, you get him. <laughs> But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Probably wouldn't have been our number one choice, would he? A wanted man. But God said, I will be with you 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve. Some translations worship. I think serve is a better translation. God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So because of time, we're not going to continue any more in the story. There's another conversation, and it's um, actually, well, no, it's not humorous, but there's, it's quite a powerful conversation that God has with Moses. Uh, but what I want to do today, I just want to pick out just a few um, things, a few kind of areas that have stood out to me as I've looked at this passage, um, and I think would really help us in our understanding of our own uh, salvation. And the first thing is that God hears and he knows. That's the first thing I want to pick up. God hears and he knows. It says this in verse 24 when we started reading the passage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Do you know, God is always, he is always the initiator of salvation. God heard and God knew. Saving grace is never reversed. All right, we sometimes sing that song by Simon Braiding. We, we don't sing, I've really earned it, totally deserve it, it's all just about me. We don't sing that because it's never about us, it's about Him. He is the initiator of our salvation. And it's so good to know, isn't it, that God hears us when we pray to Him. Isn't that good news? When we call out to God, he hears us. So come rain or shine, come through the good times or the bad in life, and we all go through them, whether you're walking, standing, kneeling, laying prostrate before God, and you cry out to him and you open your heart to him, he hears you. That's what we see from this passage. He hears us. And we live in a really noisy day, don't we? We live in a really noisy day. So much noise and chatter all the time. All the time. And there are a lot of people in need. And there are a lot of people who are hurting, who are crying out to God. But God hears each and every one of them. What we see is God hears the cry of his people, both corporately, but actually individually, personally as well. God hears you. And that's actually, I think, quite difficult for me to get my head around with, because if the TV's on, I don't hear one person. But God somehow is able to hear the cries of everyone around the world. And it doesn't bother him. It doesn't confuse him. Let me just quickly do this as an illustration. So I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And then I want everyone to just speak out their whole name, including your embarrassing middle name. All right? You don't have to shout it. Just speak it out. All right? Okay? So one, two, three. Alid Lloyd Cousins. Brilliant. Okay, so now I'm going to pick one of you to come up, take this microphone, and you're going to go from one side of the room all the way over. You're going to start at Sarah Elizabeth Stone, and you're going to work your way all the way around from left to right. No one is going to be able to do that. Do you know what? It's not a problem for God. 
It's not as though he says, right, can we, I've got the first half, let's just do it again and then I'll get everyone else. No, he knows exactly when we say to him. And he knows our needs. Matt Chandler says this, The Lord can distinguish the cries all at once from everywhere in the world. And he hears them all. This is the stunning reality. In fact, I'd like to go slightly further. I think he doesn't only hear your prayers, I think he cherishes them. I think he cherishes them. I think he values them. It says in the, in, in the Bible that our prayers are like a pleasant aroma to him. They smell good to him. In Revelation 5, 8, there's this beautiful moment where the 24 elders fall down at the feet of Jesus and they each have a golden bowl. But what's inside the bowl? It's the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of those that cry out and say, God, will you do something? They're like a treasure for him. Just imagine, we open our hearts to God, just like the Hebrew people did. We open our hearts to him, we cry out to him, and what we say is so precious to him, he keeps it almost like a treasure. Isn't that really beautiful? He really values, he really values our prayers. He heard his people and he hears you. But more than that, he is aware of you. He don't only just hears you, actually you have his attention. It says, not only did he see, but God knows. And we have this strange word in verse 24, it says this, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Now we know that God doesn't forget stuff, so therefore we've got to try and understand that word remembered, right? It's not that he was suddenly like crumbs, the promise I made to Abraham, I totally forgot. I better do something. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. It doesn't mean he forgot. It means, if you like, that God was unwavering. He was undistracted in his faithfulness to his people. He saw the groaning of the people and he remembered he was undivided in his attention. I know I have got a promise for this people. It means the fullness of his plan, if you like, had come together. In other words, they had God's undivided attention. And it's the same for you. It's the same for each and every one of us. He knows what's going on in our lives and you have his attention. Now, similarly to hearing, I know that I can't have my attention on everyone at every one time, but the Bible says that God has your attention. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. Now, that's easier for some of you than others. But he knows, he knows all the details of your heart. No one else in here knows that. But he knows. And he remembers. He's, you've got his undivided attention. God keeps all promises. And anything he starts, he finishes. So what does God do? Well, we see in verse 7, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I love that. He takes ownership. They're my people. Affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Matt Chandler says this, what we see in this text is a God who not only sees and hears and knows, 
but also a God who, without distraction, is working a plan that is for the good of his people. God has now burst onto the scene because of the hurt in his people's lives, and he's beginning to act on their behalf. His plan is perfect, and it works itself out at just the right time, in just the right way. This is how God works. So how is God going to do this? What's what's God going to do? Well, he does it through a rather unexpected choice. He chooses Moses. He chooses Moses. And there seems to actually be this kind of pattern throughout scriptures. You look particularly through the Old Testament, but through the New Testament as well. God uses the seemingly weak people, doesn't he? Maybe those that are insignificant or marginalised, people that, for each and every one of us, we probably would have said no to Moses. His application comes in, we look at the history, we look at his resume and say he is not qualified, whereas God chooses him in order to achieve his plans and purposes. And it's the same with someone like David, the shepherd boy, or Gideon, the least of the least in my clan. He says, rise up, man of valour. Esther, just a pretty Jewish girl. Abraham, an old man with wrinkly skin. And a barren wife. No, my promise is going to be through you. Rahab, a prostitute. And here we have Moses. He's a fled murderer. And from what we understand, he's got a bit of a stutter. He can't even talk properly. All right? And I'm not talking like, for, like Alfie from East End. In it, bruv. Like he, he, physically, he can't really get his word out. And this leads me to my second point. God appears to somehow be attracted to weakness. We see it time and time again in the Bible. God uses people who otherwise would have been written off. It says this in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a really good question, isn't it? Isn't it? But who am I? Do you know, I think that's probably one of the key questions that all of our society is asking all around us. Who am I? And you know, you may even be asking that within your Christian life. Who who am I to go and say that or to be a representative for you in this situation? Who am I? Who am I? And Moses has a pretty good, good try at convincing God that he got the wrong person for the job. All right? He says things like this. They won't believe me. They won't even listen to me. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I am slow of speech and of the tongue. I have no experience. I have no qualifications. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And God says, that's perfect. That's perfect. You see, Satan's main strategy with God's people has always been to whisper, don't call on the name of the Lord. Don't rely on him and his power You'll get along just fine if you do things on your own. But you see, by choosing someone like Moses, someone who was 
fully aware of his inadequacies, it creates the space God needs to demonstrate his power. Demonstrate his power. Yeah, I love the way that God even says to Moses, you'll go, you'll ask, and he's going to say no. He tells him that. He's going to say no. But what does he then say? He says, but then I'll show them the wonders that I can do. And he will let the people go. God isn't looking for someone who is a persuasive talker, a motivational speaker. He's looking for someone that in obedience will go and stutter their way through and present a platform where God can show the wonders to the world. That's what the story's about. He was going to demonstrate the fullness of his faithful, promise-keeping, unwavering salvation wonder to the world. This is my people, and you will let them go. You know, the truth of the matter is, the devil isn't overly concerned or frightened by our own human efforts or credentials. I'll tell you what does make the devil nervous, is when people like Moses, aware of their frailties and insecurities, say, in your power, I'll go. That makes him nervous. When the people of God stand up and say, I'll go. When we cry out to God in our hearts, when we rely on his power and be obedient to his calling, the enemy's kingdom is at danger. Moses says, what about my inadequacies? God says, what about my sufficiency? Moses says, what about my weaknesses? What about my stutter? He says, what about my power? Who even created the tongue? Who gives people voices, God says? Moses says, what about my inexperience? God says, what about my salvation plan? Moses says, who am I? God says, you're with me. I love that. You say, who am I? God says, you're with me. That's who you are. You're with me. And I believe so much of this actually is a a question of identity for all of us. In a world where so many people are asking the question, who am I? I think God's answer to Moses is so revealing. Because it's not actually about me making more of me. It's actually me providing a platform for God to make more of him. It's not about making me greater. It's about making him greater. It's not about me displaying my power and prowess. It's actually about him demonstrating his power. It's not about who I am. It's about who I'm in that matters. Um, A number of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw... On TV, maybe even went up there, but the uh, Meghan Markle got married to Prince Harry, in case you missed it. Um, what's interesting is that months before that day, she was just like you and me, wasn't she? She could have gone up to Buckingham Palace, she could have stood at the gate, she could have even said, I, I want to have lunch with the Queen, and they would have said, sorry, for all intents and purposes, you're, you're a no one. There's no relationship, there's no connection. You have no right to be here. Yet now something is different. Now she's with him. 
isn't she? She's with him. She's with Harry. Suddenly she gets the access and the privilege to spend time with Nanny, Gran, in the same way that the grandson does, because she's with him. And it's the same for Moses, and it's the same for us. When we have the questions of, who am I? God's response isn't, no, Moses, you're brilliant. Come on, you can do this. Just do some breathing techniques. Just think about what you're going to say, and it will come out fine. No, he says, who am I? He says, you are with me. And that is enough. Do you see that? I will go with you. It is his omnipotence that matters, not our incompetence. It is his power that matters, not our lack of it. It is his might that accomplishes his purpose and will, not ours. Never has been, never will be. When Moses is asking, who am I? God's answer is simply, I am who I am. I am who I am. Which leads me to the third point. I am who I am. Or actually, better translated from the Hebrew is, I be who I be. That will upset some of you English teachers. Verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I do go, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So here we have God introducing himself with his personal name. I am who I am. So I am a man named Alid Cousins. Okay, that is who I am. It's even on my birth certificate. I get called many other things, but that's none of your business. But that is my personal name, Alid Cousins. This is God introducing himself, if you like, with his personal name. And it doesn't quite fit in with the way that we do it, does it? It doesn't quite fit in within our tight categories. You see, for me, I say, I am Alid. Um, I am a qualified teacher. I am a pastor. I am a father. I am a brother. I am a son. I am a husband. God says, I am what I am. I am other. He doesn't label, prescribe or limit himself in any of those ways. He says, I am who I am. I am. I be who I be. It is part of my nature. I am. I am other. In other words, I have been who I have always been and I am consistent. I am who I am and I am not shaped by any other. And I will be who I will be. And I am what matters in the future. He's not just a healer. He's not just a God. He's so much more than that. He's all of those things. He is who he is. And there's no one who can compare with him. In fact, I think it's in Isaiah. He says, to whom will you compare me? Says the great I am. God does not change. He does not waver. And you know what? It's because this is true. It's because that he is the I am that it gives Moses the confidence to go. Because the God of promise yesterday is the God of promise today. Who is the God of promise tomorrow. 
It's the God of the salvation story for the Hebrews, which is the God of salvation, promise and story for us today, Jesus on the cross. It's the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. Because this is true, we can believe that all the promises of God is true. What God is saying to Moses is, the promise, it was the same yesterday as it is today. You go and I go with you. We will set these people free. I was faithful, I am faithful, and I will be faithful. I set out a covenant promise, and I shall execute my salvation plan to bring about a completion to that promise. God is not reactive. He's not just looking at a situation thinking, I'll do this. He is proactive. He has planned this. This is God's intention. This is part of God's salvation plan for his people. And you know, when we look at our own salvation story, he's still the same. He's still proactive. He's still the one who initiates. He's still faithful. He's still compassionate. And that compassion moved him to action, didn't it? It moved him to compassion, moved him to action for us. Actually, the greatest action of all time. And we see it in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus Christ. So as we finish, I just want to really apply these three things to us today. I want you to know that God sees you. I want you to know that God hears you. And more than that, I want you to know that God knows you. You have his full attention here today. You have his full attention. He feels your situation. He understands how you feel. His eyes are fixed on each and every one of us. Undistracted, unwavering, undeterred. And not only does he see us, Not only does he hear us, but he knows what needed to be done to be restored to us. He knows the successes and the wins of your life. He knows the regrets and the failures of your life. And just like Moses, God chooses one man, a seemingly frail, weak and marginalised man, a God-man called Jesus Christ, who said, I'll go. I'll go to free a people who are bondage to slavery, to sin. And he came as a servant, not as a victorious pharaoh, but as a sacrifice to die for the sins of the world, that he may set the captives free. This is Jesus Christ. And it was ugly, and it was messy, it was painful, unimaginable. Yet, you know what? It was also the most magnificent and wonderful outworking of salvation that has and ever will be witnessed by created earth. His Exodus story. God initiated the salvation of the Hebrew people, and before time began, God had orchestrated an even greater Exodus, a greater salvation story. Do you know what? You are a part of that story. Let's have the band up. He promised it. He initiated it. He heard our cry. He knew our situation and his compassion led him to action, even death on a cross. The great I am, the unchanging one, 
came and died in our place so that we may be free from the slavery of sin. Jesus Christ, our Moses, our healer, our redeemer, our leader, our everything, isn't he? Why don't you stand? I'm just going to finish by praying. Yeah, Father, we thank you for salvation's story. Lord, I want to thank you that Pharaoh is no competition to you. The enemy, Satan, no competition for you. You died and three days later you rose again. And you did that that everyone who is a slave to sin, a captive to the enemy, may be able to walk out, plunder the enemy and walk out free to worship and serve you at the base of the mountain. And so Jesus, for us that know you, we say, God, thank you. Oh, God, thank you for freeing us. Thank you for coming, as Moses did. Thank you for coming, the great I am, and rescuing me. For freeing me. Thank you for our liberty here today. And for each person in here that doesn't know you, God, I say, would you reveal yourself to them? I want to thank you that the Exodus story isn't just for us, it's for everyone who calls out on the name of the Lord. I want to thank you that your heart is that no one will perish, but that everyone will return to you. So we just say, Father, over these six weeks even, we say, God, would you do something in the hearts of men and women where we call out on your name again and we see you glorified in the way that you should be. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul's going to lead us in a song. And then uh, Sam and the guys will come and finish this up and lead us.